Let me introduce you to, to everybody. So, so Simon started out as an actuarial student and then um, decided to kind of go, I guess, on the, on the CNAC route and um, sort of in the intervening period went and did an MSc in statistics um, and subsequently saw the light and came back to an actuarial qualification. But by then was so enamoured with the banking world that he felt quite hard to to leave it for traditional actuarial roles. He heads up the Independent Validation Unit at APSA, and he's passionate about model risk in general, and the changes in model risk management that are required um, with the technological advances that are coming in with artificial intelligence, automation, and greater data, data availability. So we look forward to hearing what you've got to share with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Right. Hi, everyone. Um, just uh, a little disclaimer first. I'm a bit sick, so if I'm uh, making funny noises while I'm doing the um, presentation, please uh, give me some slack. Um, and the second one, I'm, I'm not really used to presenting, particularly to such an eclectic group of people. Um, so um, if, if you just bear with me. Um, all right, model risk. So we, we kind of spoke about it, um, or we've heard about it just now. Just on a kind of um, 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 general basis, um, <clears throat> model risk um, uh, would, would um, relate primarily to um, how good a model is at, at presenting whatever real-world phenomenon you, you're trying to model and it being a simplification of the real-world phenomenon, obviously, is some kind of a deficiency. Um, now, fortunately, in, in our statistical models uh, and within the theoretical frameworks, we've got ways of, of figuring that out. And then, of course, there is the operational um, um, considerations, such as whether the correct model is implemented, whether it's used correctly, um, and then, um, um, and, and by that, would in, in a particular scope of for specific purposes. Um, uh, so that's generally, and and of course, when uh, whether it remains to be appropriate um, under, under changing conditions. Um, so um, definition I've given here is, is fairly fairly generic, and, and I think you would have seen it in, in the majority of um, in a lot of the papers. Right. In terms of just established model risk controls, um, we in banking have started um, work on model risk um, quite a while ago, probably with the advent of Basel II um, and the implementation of the foundation and advanced internal, internal rating-based approaches, where a validation team um, is a regulatory requirement. Um, so the bulk of the banks initially looked at only regulatory capital models. Uh, then it was extended to impairment models um, um, because, I suppose, of a, of a reputational risk and the risk of, in terms of the engagement with the auditors. Um, and where we are in EPSA Group is we now, all, all of our models are basically in scope of, um, of validation and in scope of the general kind of uh, um, model risk, um, model life cycle and the controls that sit within that life cycle. So. Just in terms of 
what we would want to see in terms of established model risk controls, um, governance requirements, policies, processes that needs to be articulated, documented, standardized, approved, um, and that would um, um, ensure sort of consistency and common understanding throughout the organization. Um, model risk appetite definition and monitoring, so um, specifically how, um, what, what incidences or what quantities of model risk um, uh, the organization finds acceptable and, and not acceptable. Model inventory, that's been covered in the previous presentation, model ownership. So somebody's got to own a model. Um, if kind of model development owns the model, but it's used in business, um, then immediately um, the, the owner um, is not accountable for, for, for the users of the model and for parts of that model risk uh, definition. So um, one needs to consider quite carefully um, who, who should own the model. Um, uh, Pre-development design objectives uh, in view of the intended purpose and scope. So um, in the context of this presentation, purpose is what the model will be used for. Scope is on what populations it will be used for. It will be used. Um, and, and that needs to be articulated before we start the development of the model. Um, um, data quality, completeness, representativeness, um, and, and specifically representativeness in relation to the model scope. So if it's going to be used on a particular portfolio, uh, we would want to note that whatever data is used to develop or test the model is consistent to that particular portfolio. Methodology selection. So that applies both to the structure of the model and the parameterization thereof, or methodology employed in parameterizing the model. Um, quality and completeness of model documentation. Uh, as actuaries, I don't need to explain to you how painful that can be. Um, acceptability of model assumptions and limitations in view of the intended purpose and scope. Again, that's something that we, we're all quite familiar with. Um, assessment of model performance on an out-of-sample and out-of-time basis. That is at development. Um, it's kind of useless for us to, to know that the model performs um, on the sample in which it was developed. Um, it's a bit of a tautology. But um, we, we would want to know that the performance of the model is generalizable to out-of-sample and out-of-time um, uh, data. Um, then independent validation, um, uh, pre-implementation, and, and then periodically thereafter. The period and the extent of validation can certainly vary depending on whatever criteria you want to look at. Um, initial approval and periodic reapproval of the model, so like reaffirmation re that the model remains fit, fit for purpose and we can continue to use the model. Um, assurance of correct implementation, pre and post implementation, which, which typically requires pre implementation testing, post implementation testing. Um, periodic model performance and use monitoring, so ensuring that the model is used for what it was built for and on the population for which it was built, um, as well as um, regular model performance as an early warning trigger when the model stops performing and then we, we either need to step in and do something about it or, or go the contingency route. And then of course audit assurance as a, as a third line, line of defense, whether they review the processes or the controls within the process or whatever the case may be. Okay, so that's kind of traditionally what we do. Um, now, machine learning. Um, machine learning, um, um, sorry, I just wanted to, to go back. And we, we do believe that model risk is going to become progressively more topical. What we see in banking um, is, first of all, the South African Reserve Bank or, or the Prudential Authority, as they're now known, 
has requested the banks to come up with a methodology to quantify model risk as part of the economic capital. And it's no longer a discussion of conservatism on regulatory capital models or margins of conservatism. It is now some, some form of methodology to, to actually quantify um, model risk. The second one is um, with the, whatever they call it, Basel 3.5 or Basel 4 um, standard coming in in um, 2022, um, for, for a lot of the low default portfolios where we don't have reliable data and, and we don't have uh, a sufficient number of defaults to empirically, um, to, to have um, empirically robust uh, model estimates, um, the advanced um, um, internal rating-based approach and possibly um, foundation internal rating-based approach will be disallowed in favor of the standardized approaches. So. Um, so the regulators do seem to be concerned about the quantum of model risk specifically in, in, in those type of portfolios. Machine learning. Um, so it's a field of computer science um, where algorithms improve their performance at certain tasks as more data is observed. Um, what is attempted to do is to generalize beyond the data in the training set. Um, and primarily machine learning Algorithms or systems thrive on, on data. The more data they have, the more granular they have. Uh, they can become. Um, um, and I think, I think it, it's, it sort of came out of the amount of data that that has become possible to store, and, and not necessarily sort of um, um, applicable data. It, it could be similar and related data, such as um, behavior on. Um, um, on online forums or Facebook or WhatsApp that somehow sort of predicts whatever real-world phenomenon you're trying to model. Um, machine learning is motivated by pattern recognition and focuses solely in a, on predictive accuracy of the system. Uh, no inference or assumptions are made about the underlying mechanism. So it's purely a, a data process. Yes, there may be some assumptions made in the selection of the algorithm, as we'll see later. Um, but primarily, it's, a, it's an exploratory data process, and on the basis of that data process, um, we, we answer a, a, a particular purpose of the, of the model. A uh, good way, um, and I've seen the graph, I just couldn't find it for this presentation, um, kind of a good way to distinguish between a statistical model is a machine learning if, uh, model. If you think about the two-dimensional space, a statistical model would be like a line. It sort of cuts between good and bad exposures, for example. A machine learning model would be like a set of contours where there are specific groups of good quality exposures identified on the, within the two-dimensional space. Um, right. So since data is probably the most important element of machine learning, uh, we'll cover that first. Um, machine learning cannot deal with, um, with poor and reliable or biased data. In some cases, and, and probably outliers is a good example of that, with statistical models, there are specific techniques which you can deal with um, the outliers. Um, even if some of the data is not necessarily accurate, um, because the parameterization methods and techniques are well established, potentially um, it shouldn't have a material impact on your final model. Um, with machine learning there, if you have pockets of incorrect data, then um, 
the decision making will be completely wrong within that space. Um, collection, storage, and security of data must be compliant to relevant regulations and internal policies. That, that's kind of um, self-explanatory, and, and in view of the popular um, um, act, I think, I think um, what we've seen, particularly with the tech companies, is that they collect and store absolutely everything and hope that at some point in the future they might use it for, for whatever purpose. Um, I'm not sure if that's kind of going to be foreseeable going into the future or possible going into the future. Um, the raw data may not be in a form amenable to training. And typically, um, and we, we do that in stats as well, I suppose, um, uh, a process termed feature engineering is undertaken where um, um, a set of synthetic variables are created um, which are more geared towards a training of, of a machine learning system. However, um, the process itself um, can create uh, errors or bias in the data. Um, also, the data may become uninterpretable in terms of the um, feature engineering process. So you no longer can interpret what the particular variable means. Um, and depending on the requirement for the explainability of your outcomes, so um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a statistical specialist, but I'd imagine you'd want to be able to explain to a client how you rate, um, um, sorry, I'm not an insurance specialist, um, how, how you rate, uh, how you calculate a premium on the basis of which factors. That may not be an acceptable outcome. Um, Training becomes exponentially harder as the dimensionality, number of features of the data set grows. Um, so, so that kind of sounds um, um, counterintuitive almost at first. But if you think about having you know, 500 variables, uh, a lot of which may not be predictive for whatever you're trying to predict, um, and only a finite number of, observation, um, of observations, then um, how do you identify and select the, the really significant variables? Um, I've spoken about the outliers earlier. So machine learning systems may see outliers as a valid pattern and base the decision making on, on that. Uh, whereas in, in statistical system outliers are almost automatically mitigated because your, your distribution is, um, is, is structured in a certain way. Um, and yes, you can, you, you can deal with outliers through um, proper data cleaning or, or review. Um, but, but again, something that probably will affect machine learning systems more than, than statistical models. Um, then there's a problem of data leakage. And then a any training of a system on a bias or non-random data set will result in a poor generalizability of the system. Okay. Um, the second component is really the algorithms that they used. Um, and there is... Um, it's sort of the, the number of algorithms is increasing almost daily. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, um, and uh, there's a variety of them. E each one has a distinct set of advantages and disadvantages. Um, the use of a particular algorithm for a particular purpose becomes quite an important um, feature to consider. Um, You know, a lot of the times in our space, certainly, we talk about challenger models, um, where, where um, we use the same data sets, so we use the same information, but we build a different model, and then we see whether it performs better than the model built by, by the development teams. Um, 
that gets complicated in the space because of computational requirements and um, how many how many challenge algorithms are you going to run for a particular application um, and just running one algorithm may not may not ensure the optimality of the system so there is a trade-off between between technical requirements in terms of how many concurrent uh, models do you want to build versus this is the cost of um, of the hardware, basically. Um, a lot of algorithmic approaches are black boxes. So you basically, um, potentially through the feature engineering, um, you end up with uninterpretable, um, you may end up with uninterpretable um, rich drivers or variables. And then the, the algorithm being, being a, a black box, then you, you can't really explain how the risk drivers affect the final outcome. So that, that could be quite a serious thing for certain types of models. Um, human bias, in terms of algorithmic selections, um, most um, machine learning coders or developers uh, would specialize in certain types of algorithms. They may not be appropriate for a particular application, um, but they would be biased towards using something that they know and something that they can train data on quite well. Um, and, and that create a can create a bias in, in the selection of algorithms. Um, overfitting is a serious problem in machine learning um, because the system can really, really, um, on the in-sample basis, can become exceptionally accurate. Um, what you would like to see is that the system on an out-of-sample basis perform, performs just as well or almost as well. Um, and then there's a problem of multiple testing. Um, and um, really, how many statistical tests are you going to do? Um, or how many performance testing are you going to do? And how do you sort of identify whether they're significant or not? Okay, J just in terms of general recommendations um, or, or general concerns. So, uh, machine learning can assess whether a specific objective being met is being met, uh, but but not whether this is through morally acceptable means. So, if we feed data that's um, um, race data, gender data, we potentially were not allowed to use for certain applications. Machine learning systems will incorporate that data if it is predicted. Um, so we need to be quite aware of what we can and cannot put into the black box. Um, uh, machine learning system may see counterintuitive patterns in a set of data, a pattern in a random set of data. So that's that's kind of a so. Even if you select a random data set, there'll be some patterns within it. And machine, machine learning systems will zero in on those, um, irrespective of the fact that the data came from a, from a random distribution. Um, so kind of performance testing, um, not, not just on the in-sample basis, but on an out-of-sample and out-of-time basis becomes really, really critical. Um, machine learning cannot, um, cannot view something as a cause or, or uh, distinguish between causal correlation, obviously. So they'll identify certain variables that drive um, the, the outcome or drive the, the prediction that you want to obtain. Um, but whether it makes sense that these variables actually affect the prediction or not, um, and whether it, you know, it's just a concurrent relationship or intrinsic relationship between, uh, between the outcome and the particular variable, or indeed the variable is a precursor or predictor of an outcome, um, the system will not be able to differentiate. Um, so I've kind of spoken of a, a bit about um, um, 
out of sample, out of time. But this is more around, um, um, say, say, a change in, the, and, and that's probably applicable to all the models, but uh, a change in um, economic environment or um, a change in um, um, population of applicants, uh, whatever external change can happen, uh, machine learning system may not work um, on the new population because it was strained on a specific population. Um, um, a lot of the times I think we, certainly in our space, we want to we see, see some form of monotonic relationship between, um, between a variable or a predictor and, and the outcome. So an example of this would be um, profit margin versus, oh, sorry, um, uh, profit margin versus the um, um, ranking of uh, um, business exposures. We would like to see that um, as profit margin increases, um, the likelihood of default decreases. Um, machine learning will not necessarily give you that because it considers tens or hundreds of thousands of variables in, in, in um, combination. And when you kind of start analyzing um, the relationship between the outcome and any given variable, um, the trend may become very counterintuitive. So you, you may have a pattern where as, uh, as the profit margin increases, your for some segments of the population or some sectors, um, the um, uh, probability of default will also increase. Um, so, um, and, and that's explicitly kind of guided against in, in statistical models because the structures generally or the methodology, whatever you want to call it, is pretty hard-coded. So if, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the, the formula that the model use, uh, uses, um, th there is prescribed relationship between the outcome and, and, and the variables that fit into it. Um, they're not self-replicating or self-optimizing. I suppose that's true for, for current models as well, but uh, because machine learning have, have potential to be evolving quite quickly or change quite quickly, uh, we may end up in, in a situation where we accumulate quite a lot of technical debt. So that, that environment and the process and the system need to be cl cleaned up quite, quite frequently. Um, we need contingency plans um, to minimize business disruption. I suppose that's equally true with, um, um, with kind of statistical models. Um, but um, because um, machine learning can be quite an opaque environment uh, and you know, even if we identify that the model is un underperforming, um, we may not be able to explain why it is underperforming. Uh, with a statistical model, we typically can zero in on, on um, where the problem is and then, and then just try and correct it for the particular problem. Um, uh, performance monitoring becomes much more important um, and uh, at much greater frequency than a statistical model, uh, particularly if the model gets updated quite continuously. So that, that may require additional technology um, and additional methodologies for monitoring of model performance. And the more uncertain or rapid changing the environment in which the system is expected to operate, or the longer the feedback loop between in, uh, from, from the monitoring, um, uh, the more generalized the solution should be. So we may want to trade off the performance or the ranking ability of the system for generalizability. So that even if, um, 
um, so, so that the system continues to perform um, even with reasonably reasonable changes in the environmental population. Just, just one thing I want to mention before we go on to the next page. Um, there is this new kind of generational machine learnings, which um, which are based on neural networks, and which are completely self-learning. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, we haven't really applied ourselves as, as yet to how you control model risk within that space, uh, because if if a thing if if that system learns in a real-time environment, um, so the concept of out-of-sample testing, the concepts of um, um, and and kind of ability to to put it into a structured governance process becomes becomes very complicated. I do not expect that we in banks and possibly you in insurance are going to use that anytime soon. But I think at some point we're going to have to look at this in, in, in more detail. So this um, what I'm talking about here is um, it's machine learning environments, but really they they're kind of the same as as a normal model. Um, so it'll stay static for a period of time, then it'll be updated, and it'll stay static for a period of time, that'll be updated. If you've got a real-time evolving model, as more data comes in, I think, I think the governance and the um, assurance will become much more complicated. Let me just go back to the original um, kind of the, the model risk controls and where we, I think we, we have to focus um, for, on, on the machine learning models. Um, obviously, the design objectives must be much more carefully articulated. Because the selection of data sets, um, whether you do um, feature engineering or not, um, whether uh, you select particularly particular algorithms or certain algorithms are not appropriate, whether you want certain relationships between um, the, the uh, predict and response variables, all of that needs to be specified explicitly within uh, within the pre-development design objectives. We we call it terms of reference, but I mean, what's in the name, right? Um, Data quality, completeness, and representativeness uh, becomes a real, really important um, issue, um, particularly if, uh, if the organization collects all the data possible from all the sources possible, uh, and therefore potentially cannot ensure the quality of the data or completeness of the data. So, um, and, and of course, if the data is rubbish, just like with statistical model, the output is going to be rubbish. Um, but it will be more affected here because not only will it change the, the parameters of the model, it will also potentially change the form of the model. Um, methodology selection becomes quite critical. So which algorithms do you use? Um, do you run multiple algorithms in, um, in parallel? Um, do these algorithms or does the final product have to um, comply with, with, with certain criteria like monotonicity or explainability, things like that? Um, assessment of model performance on an out-of-sample on time basis, so you need to do that at inception, so when the model is built, um, and then on continuous the monitoring thereafter, and I kind of mentioned the difficulties with, uh, well, not difficulties, but I think the um, enhancements that we, we will have to put in in terms of um, um, real-time monitoring and much shorter feedback loop between the monitoring results and then, and then um, kind of deciding whether any adjustments need to be made to the model. And then, yeah, and that, that sort of covers periodic model performance and monitoring. So um, what may also be a concern here is, is how frequently the models get updated as well. So um, typically, I'm, I'm not sure in, in your space, in our space, we would typically update the models um, no more frequently than once a year in terms of methodology and structure. 
um, and core parameterization, we may have some kind of refreshes or alignments that come through, and that methodology is approved of, as part of the approval of the model methodology. Um, but in this space, we're looking at, um, and, and discussions we've had with our guys, um, they would want to update this and, and kind of refit it and retrain it um, every, every three months or every two months, because once, once the, the code is done and the data kind of feeds automatically, it becomes very easy to just rerun the thing. Um, but then, how does your approval cycle work in such a situation? Do you then start approving every two months? Uh, where does your independent validation fit in such a situation? Um, and potentially, um, where does your monitoring fit? Do you have to then recode your monitoring every two months as well? Um, so, so that's about it. I don't know if you want to ask any questions. Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I've got a quick question. With the continuous advances in how much data we can collect and the you know, improvements in processing power and uh, there's a lot of active research in the area of machine learning, um, would you say that it's possible that um, the machine learning based approaches will completely overtake the statistical parametric approaches in the future or will there always be room for both or maybe just comment on how you feel about that? Um, I think there will always be room for both. Um, and, I, and I think it goes to the heart of that issue of explainability or um, a, a sort of desired relationship between the predictors and the outcome. Um, so the relationship that you obtain from machine learning um, systems um, may be quite random uh, because it identifies pockets. It, it doesn't really try and, and, and build trends or identify certain trends. Um, and so far the users we've seen um, was primarily in uh, fraud detection, which, which kind of works quite well. But the worst thing that can happen there is if you detect fraud and it wasn't fraud, well, that's cool. And, and potentially, um, and we've seen users in um, sort of um, um, uh, customer outreach or customer sale programs where we identify specific customers that we would like to contact for, for, for a particular product. Again, the, the kind of the downside of this thing breaking down is it's fairly low. Um, I would think that, and again, I'm speaking from a kind of bank perspective, um, I would think that if we wanted to do a pricing model on the basis of machine learning, um, potentially it would not be very popular because we would want certain factors to affect the final price in a certain way. Um, so so there's, a, there's a fair amount of a theoretical kind of or, or structured relationships that, that you want to incorporate in there. And you want to be able to explain on what basis do you came up with a certain price. So I, I really do believe um, that the need for um, explainability um, and, and the need for, for certain structures or relationships within the model will mean that we will still use traditional statistical models going forward. Um, what I think will change is probably the amount of time we spend building models versus governing model risk. Um, and, and my belief is that building models will become progressively easier and automated going forward. Uh, not, not for all applications, but for certain specific applications. What we're looking at is um, 
uh, regulatory capital models, um, impairment models, which are, which are fairly structured, and, and you know what you want to, to get. And, um, uh, but uh, the governance around it, around it will become more complex. And yeah, potentially, if you're running a machine learning system, you may want a, a sort of a machine learning validation system to run in parallel. And it might be the only solution that will actually work going forward. Okay, if there are no more questions, I think that we'll move on to the next topic. Simon, thanks very much. Thanks for sharing all your experience and learning with us. That's great.